Hey, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. On this podcast, we go in depth with leading experts from all walks of life to understand and improve your health and well being. It's time to pull out your most recent blood work results because today I'm talking with Dr. Dickon Weatherby all about the secrets of your CBC or complete blood count and CMP or comprehensive metabolic panel and more. Dr. Weatherby is a naturopathic physician and leading expert in functional blood chemistry analysis. He has authored six books on functional diagnostics and is the founder of Optimal DX, an education and software company focusing on blood chemistry results and functional health reports. In fact, I have been a huge fan and follower of Dr. Weatherby since 2002. That's when I bought his first book. So it was an absolute pleasure talking with him today about lab work that you've been told is normal, but on better review, might actually provide deeper meaning and clues that can get missed. Here's a clip from today's conversation. So when you see a biomarker, the level that is high or low, you have to kind of go back to what that biomarker is and the biochemistry and the, and the metabolism that's associated with it. So something like iron, which comes into our bodies exogenously on our, in our food. So it, the natural thing to say is, oh, there's not enough in my diet. Well, that's potentially true. It could be that you have plenty in your diet, but you're just not absorbing it properly. That's true. Or you could be situation where you've got an unknown infection. I mean, a bacteria loves iron. So that could be another situation where you, you have tons of iron, but it's just being used up by pathogens in your body. Or here's another one. You could be bleeding internally. And that's something, especially for men. So we very rarely see iron deficiency anemia in men. But if you do see it in, in your male patients, you've got to start wondering about a, a potential slow bleed. I mean, it could be an, a bleeding ulcer of some kind, some kind of bleed that's happening somewhere in the digestive tract, probably, or internal bleeding, which is fairly uncommon, I would guess. That's just a small taste of the amazing show we have for you today. Hey, before we get started, I want to talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that, of course, is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. And if you're an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you are placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health, and Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 25 different labs in one single place. Thank goodness, no need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. So if you are a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create a free account today. Now, let's get on with the show. Dr. Dickon Weatherby, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. Very uh, happy to be here. Honestly, I'll tell you, I have a massive fangirl crush on you because I know the listeners can't see this, <laughs> but if you're watching the video, I have your 2002 book in my hand, yeah. Blood Chemistry and CBC Analysis. The whole thing is highlighted, written in oh. from 2002, and I still have it, and I wanted to show you that. Oh, that's very cool. Someday I'll get you to autograph it. That's <laughs> <laughs> very cool indeed. One of the earlier pre-Amazon editions. Yeah, I bought it. I'm sure I bought it directly from... From Bastia, probably. From back, yeah. well, I went to NCNM. Oh, you went to NCNM and UNM and UNM back when it was NCNM. But yeah, I'm sure I bought it directly from them. So that's how long I've been following you, and that's how long I've been following your work. So very cool. Well, good. I'm pretty thrilled to talk all about blood work. Yeah, yeah. With you today because it's 
it's a good topic and a lot of people have a lot of questions and a lot of people get their lab work done, told they're normal and they don't know what to do, right? Far cry, yeah. Yeah, they're not normal, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) And they sure don't feel normal. They sure don't feel normal, yeah. (laughs) Before we get started though, I know who you are, but why don't you give a brief introduction, who you are, what you do, what you stand for, so the listeners know we have an expert on the podcast. Oh, that's kind. Well, Dr. Dick and Weatherby, I'm originally from England, moved to the United States when I was 20. So I've been here for way longer than I ever was in England. Did my medical training at the same university as you. And it was NCNMA back then, National College of Naturopathic Medicine. I graduated in 1998. So Carrie, it's going to be 24 years this year. Um, come this May, I think, when I graduated. So uh, I feel like a, an old timer. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know, like you, when we were at school, we were looking back and being taught by people that graduated in 78 and 79, and they seem like, oh, you know, they've been around the block. Well, I guess I've been around the block too, so. You definitely, definitely have. I mean, I think in terms of providing some context to the work that I do, which has been in the field of, of functional blood chemistry analysis and diagnostics and assessment, I actually grew up, my mom was a, into alternative medicine back in the 60s, and So I grew up with homeopathy, with herbal medicine, with uh, raised vegetarian, olive oil in our ears with uh, uh, earaches, and she'd make her own cough medicines and things to me. So when I decided I wanted to kind of follow in her direction, she's actually a chiropractor. She's had a 35-year career. And my sister's a chiropractor as well over in the UK. So it was sort of a a natural move. I actually was flying from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco in 1992. And at the airport, I picked up a copy of Natural Health magazine. And in there was like a little ad at the back for National College. And I said, that's what I want to do. So I spent the next two years doing my pre-med in San Francisco and went there in 94. You know, one of the things that really struck me about formal education back then was that even though we were studying naturopathic medicine, which was incredible, and the philosophies of of how we heal and all of that stuff, most of our diagnostics was about pathology. Mm -hmm. And so it became very clear to me that there was this big gaping hole in our education to some extent. How do we assess those people that are not pathological perspective? They don't have cellular change. They're not candidates for surgery. And yet, as you said, they just don't feel very well. And so there was this natural kind of inclination from my perspective to go, okay, so what about these tests that we're doing? And I, for some reason, I was always a, a biochemistry and a nutritional nut. So I went to my first functional blood chemistry training in 95, small hotel in Portland Airport. I'm sure you probably went to the same hotel and did trainings and things like that. (laughs) I'm sure. There were moments in your life when you look back and you go, that was a moment when my life changed. I didn't know it at the time, but from where I sit right now, that was the moment that really changed my life in terms of, of moving in this direction. So like I said, I graduated in 98, moved down to Ashland, Oregon, worked in a naturopathic practice down there. And the physician sort of took my love of lab testing and said, all right, I'll teach you everything I know about labs. He was an old-time doc, graduated in 75. So I started picking his brain and and started putting these patterns together that we were seeing in the blood and went from there and started writing books and teaching. And here I am right now as, uh, I guess, one of the experts in functional blood chemistry analysis. But, you know, I stand on the shoulder of giants. It's like, there's nothing I really do that's that unique. It's just like a way of presenting information and making it easy to understand. So I run a company called Optimal DX. We have a software program. We do the analysis of blood testing, providing interpretive reporting. So really my job is to make your job as a practitioner easier by facilitating more effective 
more meaningful communication with your patients through analysis, interpretation of blood test results. Well, I think the fact that you said you make it easy, I mean, that just hit it on the head for me as a practitioner. I started school in 2001. I actually worked for the school for two years before I became a student. So I was there in 99 and then oh, right. okay. joined in 2001. Yeah. And then I found your book and started following everything that you do. And I thought this, this I can understand. This makes sense to me. This is how it should be mm-hmm. as a practitioner having to learn this lab work. So But for patients, being on the patient, and you know this as much as anyone, I mean, I have a lab background in that I used to be the medical director of the Dutch test. So hormones, right? Right. Precision. Is it precision? Yeah. Precision analytical. Yeah. Now I'm at Rupa, so I'm exposed to 25, 26 different labs all the time. Yeah. Right. All the other different companies. Yeah. Right. It's by platform expand quite a bit. And still, and still, the amount of lab work available to people in this day and age, the amount of people that say to me, oh, I've never had labs or no, my doctor never worked me up for that. Or no, I was told I was too young for that. Or I was too old for that. Or that doesn't fit my case. Do you hear that? Why do you think this is that people sort of get brushed off when it comes to lab work? Well, I think in some ways it's like when you're sitting down with a GP and, you know, and I don't want to bash allopathic medicine, you know, of course, yeah, that they're doing the very best with the tools and the education and the brainwashing that they've been had, but their time is minimal. And I think for them, Mm -hmm. they're oftentimes looking for what can we pinpoint that I can treat with a drug Mm -hmm. or surgery? And that's about it. (laughs) Right. So, you know, a lot of the people that we see don't fall into that category. I remember Gray Graham, who is, was the. Yeah. I know Gray. Owner of, do you know Gray? Yeah. Yeah, one of my early mentors. And he he always talked about the nightmare of yet. And I talk about this every training I do. I talk about the nightmare of yet and I talk about, about Gray. So the nightmare of yet is like, oh, you don't have diabetes yet. We'll wait until you do and then we can treat it. That's not what they say, but that's really what they're meaning. And we can say that with anything. You don't have gallbladder. We don't need to do gallbladder surgery yet. So your gallbladder isn't to the point where we can actually do something. Yet the patient's suffering from gallbladder discomfort So the nightmare of yet fits to the paradigm of allopathic medicine because they don't know what to do with liver dysfunction, a gallbladder dysfunction. This area, this gray area that I talk about, which is like where your physiology is starting to go off. You're not physiologically functioning properly. It's why I love the the training that we got in physiology. It's the understanding how do we evolve to function. So I think the part of the problem is, is that the diagnostic testing that is available to people, now it's opening up and what Rupert is doing by making available all of the lab tests that, that are available. And as naturopathy physicians, we've had these for 30, 40 years. So it's a no-brainer for us. For the allopathic community, I think it's... I went to my GP the other day. I got an annual checkup and I actually started quizzing. He didn't know who I was. And I started doing some, some quizzing about you know what kind of blood tests that they would run. I said, I'm 52 years old. I don't have a history of diabetes or family, a history of heart disease, but what testing would you do to kind of satisfy my curiosity that I don't have early stage pre-diabetes? And he said, well, we just do a fasting glucose and total cholesterol. And that was it. And I'm like, that's it? Oh, yeah. I said, a fasting glucose and a total cholesterol. Yeah. I got a cholesterol panel. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, do you ever do like lipid fractionations, APO, lipoprotein A, little a, do you ever do APO A1 and all that kind of stuff? Oh, no, we don't do that. And I said, well, why not? He said, to be really to be honest with you, because it doesn't really help our treatments. You either go in statins or you don't. I was staggered by it. Well, statins, yeah. yeah. I was staggered by that. Yeah. And yet, so that's what happens is patients go, they might get a very cursory CBC, a very small smattering of chemistry tests that really 
on the face of it, when you look at them just one by one, and we'll probably talk about patterns in a moment, but mm-hmm. when you look at them isolated from one another, they, they don't really tell you that much. So I think it's a real shame, actually, to be honest, that they don't do more. <laughs> but yeah, insurance won't cover it, probably. <laughs> yeah, insurance. And, and you're right. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said, with an acute care model, when you have six to eight minutes, and this is what my conventional acute care friends say. They're like, I have eight minutes. I don't have time to talk to somebody about... Eight minutes? Luxury. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have time to talk to. Yeah. In my case, I work with a lot of females and hormones. And so they're like, I don't have time to talk to somebody about their hormone stuff. And which is why in, in my practice, I would have symptomatic women come in and they would say, oh, I got fully worked up. I got blood work. And it was just what you said, a CBC, hmm. a complete blood count, maybe a cholesterol panel. And maybe part of a metabolic panel. So glucose, maybe some electrolytes, liver markers, just a few. And they're like, see, I got fully worked up and I was told that I was fine. I said, well, there's it's not a hormone on here. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I mean, this is great. And I'm glad you got some blood work. But unfortunately, the mark was missed. And I, I'm sure you see that, just like you said, often as well. Time and time again. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and unfortunately, people, because they're told in the setting, we did a full workup and you're fine. So in some cases, I have had friends say, I didn't get any further. I didn't ask a second opinion. I didn't see a specialist. I didn't move on because I was told that the blood work I got was a thorough workup and, mm-hmm. and it was all, it's all fine. It's all in range. So there, what else was I supposed to do? And I thought, oh man, this is where the whole empower the patient comes into and that it's okay to get a second opinion. It's okay to do research on your own. It's okay to ask for, do what you did, ask for extra testing. Have you ever considered this? Would you do this yeah. based on my age, my family history? Can we please look at doing this? And there also there seems to be a lack of curiosity too. In yeah. again, I don't want to be like going down the road of bashing people, but it's like there's a lack of curiosity about people's lives, about their symptomology, and about their history. Yeah, you cannot get the totality of what a person's dealing with in eight minutes. You just can't. Right. I love questionnaires because I think it's an opportunity for patients to fill out information away from the office where they they got a bit of time in their hands and they can start. Gosh, you know, really, am I? experiencing this. And so questionnaires is a way to, to do that. I've written a book on signs and symptoms analysis and things like that. But really the natural curiosity, and that's why homeopathy was actually something that I was really interested in before I moved into naturopathy was because of the totality of symptoms that the homeopaths tend to do is they really get into the full story right. of what your experience is. And it's like the putting the, the threads together. It's like, it's almost like the Sherlock Holmes way of looking at things like, yeah, you can see something, but you're what he was like observing, but not seeing or something. I can't yeah. remember, but yeah. it's the same thing with medicine. And yeah, I think it's a real shame. Yeah. And they, they know it, right? They, like I said, my friends in primary acute care and, and probably yours too. They're like, I would love to, I would love to spend 18 minutes, 28 minutes, but we just have to make sure the acute stuff is dealt with and that's what they're best in and yeah. move on. Well, you've got the case where someone goes to urgent care. Yeah. <laughs> where it's two minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And God, you know, good. Thank goodness we have it. God bless them. I tell you what, if I was... Right, God bless them. Exactly. If I'm in a car accident, don't... Like, I'm not going to you. I'm going to the ER. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So, absolutely. All right. Well, let's focus in on some of these labs. Like I said in the very beginning, everything I learned about the CBC and the metabolic panel learned from your book back in 2002. So let's dive into that because a lot of people, that's what they start out with. They're like, well, I I got these white blood cells and these red blood cells. And what the hell do they tell me about? I'm told it's normal. What the hell am I talking about? Does this have to do with hormones? (laughs) Yeah. So the CBC, the complete blood count, as we call it in, uh, in England, the hematology panel is really a measurement of your red blood cells and your white blood cells. So obviously two cells 
cell types that are in, in the blood. So let's start with white blood cells. I think one of the things that I pick up from that is something that most people don't pick up on is like when white blood cell count is low. Yes. So I talk about this concept of immune insufficiency. You're not necessarily going to have an infection right now, but it's like when your white blood cell count is low, it's like you don't have the cell count to muster some kind of, of response. It can be nutritional. I mean, I think of zinc as being a, a nutrient that is very affected or zinc deficiency, which we see a lot. So common signs and symptoms of zinc deficiency, you know, white spots on your fingernails, loss of taste and smell. It's actually one of the things that we saw early on with COVID, right? Yep. So a lot of my colleagues, and, and if you go over to my website, we've got a lot of articles talking about zinc and COVID. It's one of those things that's very, very important to make sure that you have enough zinc in order to mount a good response to potentially an invading COVID type of infection. So looking at low white blood cells is important, but then also looking at the sort of ratios between the five main cell types. So neutrophils, which are about bacterial infection, lymphocytes, which are about viral infection. Monocytes, to me, is more about, are we looking at chronicity here? Are we looking at the body pumping out this cell type that's a, basically what they call phagocytic? So it goes around munching up all the dead cells and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Or are we looking at an increase in sort of more of the allergic type of cells, the eosinophils and the basophils? So the body likes to have a nice ratio of these, which is the percentage count. And when that ratio starts to go off, you're starting to think, are we trending towards a viral picture where the lymphocytes start to come up and the, and the neutrophils start to come down? Or are we looking at a bacterial trending towards a bacterial infection? We don't know where it is, but potentially there's something going on in the body. Lymphocyte count starts to drop and the neutrophil count start, or percentages start to go up. And then, of course, you actually look at the actual numbers themselves. So of the 4.5 total white blood cell count, how many neutrophils are there and how many lymphocytes? So that can tell you direct are you looking at too many? Are you looking at too little? And that sort of thing. So I think what that, that does for me is like, it's sort of like almost a terrain analysis. It's like the underlying terrain or the soil of the body is this immune response. And are we looking at potentially moving in the direction of bacterial or viral, or, or are we looking at there probably was an infection somewhere along the line, but now the monocyte count is up. And, and so the body's sort of cleaning it up. Are we looking at a, a sort of an allergic threshold that's been overcome? So that would then lead you to wanting to do maybe food allergy testing. So it's a huge one when you see eosinophil counts and basophil counts going up. So that leads then into that further testing world, which you're really in, which is specialized testing. So using this model of looking at the blood to give us early warning signs of potential areas of dysfunction. And I look at it as trend analysis. So sometimes you see, actually, oh yeah, this is actually happening right now. A lot of times it's like, hey, this is potentially going to happen if you keep doing what you're doing, which is why that history and the diet and all that stuff is so important. And then you've got the red blood cells, which tell us really, I think a lot about, I mean, we, I look at it from this functional nutritional perspective as sort of a nutritional window, um, looking primarily at iron and B12 and folate and things like that. So we can actually look at the number of red blood cells. Then we look at a few things like hematocrit and hemoglobin, how much hemoglobin is there in the red blood cells. And when you look at those three together, you can kind of get a sense of like whether or not someone's trending towards an anemia. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I always talk about, anemia is a symptom, it's not a disease. So you need to actually qualify it. So it needs to be qualified, an iron deficiency anemia or a B12 deficiency. 
And then we look at some of those other wonderful things that most people don't understand, MCV and MCH and MCHD. One of the things that, I mean, I'm, I'm going to go off on a tangent here, but one of the things that really strikes me about yeah, but go for it. Western medicine and, and Western medical science is that they've designed this test to be as obscure as possible, right? <laughs> so it's packed with information, but zero meaning. It is just an information tool. And it requires this expert to be able to extract this information. So I like to uh, educate my, the practitioners that work with me is like, you know, do your best to educate your patients so that they can understand to the best of their ability what these things are. And putting it in a language that they can understand is some of the reporting that we do. We do an out of optimal range report. It says, you know, you've got a high MCV. This is what MCV means mm -hmm. so that you can then inform yourself, be an informed consumer of this test that you're doing. Anyway, so yeah, we're looking here at nutritional anemias mostly. And obviously anemia is, can be very dangerous too. There can be, oh, anemia is a chronic disease and there can be also thalassemias and, and blood dyscrasias and things like that. That's really, you need to be in the hands of a hematologist or, or a practitioner who really understands that stuff. But from our perspective, from this functional nutritional perspective, really looking at the red blood cell count, the hemoglobin, hematocrit, and then the MCV and the MCH really about are we looking at an iron deficiency state or, or a B12 folate? And then the thing is, most allopathic physicians aren't running iron panels. Well, that was my next thing I was going to say. <laughs> the, amount of, the amount of people that write me and say, either I suspect I have iron, iron's an issue, I've been told that iron's an issue, and, and they don't know what to do. And they don't know, what they, or they mm. try to send screenshots. Here's my RBC, crit, mm. here's everything. Here's my CBC. Do I have an iron problem? Right? Where is the problem? I'm so confused. Yeah. And yeah, you can tell somewhat if someone's MCV is at 81, their cells are very small. That's probably an iron deficiency anemia. And then running that full iron panel, I think is really important. What are the levels of iron floating around in the blood? Total iron. What is the levels of your storage form of iron? Because you know, Dr. Sandberg-Lewis? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So Stephen, fantastic, phenomenal practitioner, incredible teacher, one of my mentors. I was at NCNM when he first joined the staff there. And he always talked about how blood work is like your body wants to keep the blood as clean as possible. So it will do whatever it can to put out and keep the blood clean. Mm -hmm. So when you are seeing MCVs are really low and you are seeing ferritin levels starting to drop, you know that there's probably an issue at the tissue level that we're not seeing. And I know the specialty labs that you're looking and you work with are oftentimes looking at that tissue level and we don't really get a chance to have a window through blood serum testing to be able to view the, the tissue levels. But something like ferritin, which is the storage form of iron, you, it's totally possible to be walking around with a total iron that is completely optimal mm -hmm. and the ferritin is at 13. It's like the body's going into the stores and pulling out and just going, well, the customers want to see all of the, the pickles. Let's go to the store and grab them all and put them on the front counter. Hey, we've got tons of pickles. But no, you go to the storage and there's none there. And so that person is very quickly going to be moving into symptomatic iron deficiency anemia if they, if they haven't already moved in that direction. So just even just that one blood biomarker, the ferritin is so important when you're doing an assessment of iron deficiency anemia, because it, it really can help pinpoint how long has this thing been going on for. So that's just, a, you know, we're moving more into, into the chem screen. And that, that goes to your analogy in the beginning of yet, right? Yeah. That, that's a classic example of yeah. they're not any, they're starting, maybe not fully symptomatic or starting to become symptomatic. They're not out, quote, out of iron yet, mm -hmm. but in like, they're not out of pickles yet, but they will be. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> they're not out of pickles yet. <laughs> but then you look at what 
allopathic physicians, obviously, they've had maybe 20 minutes of nutritional training. And so they give these iron pills that make people horribly constipated and they're not absorbable. And that's another problem, right? So you're now, you've identified a nutritional issue, but you're treating it the same way that you would use like a prescription drug on some level and not have a real understanding of human physiology and how iron actually needs to be in a form that the body can use. So yeah, don't rely on your prescription iron formula from your MD or, or the urgent care or wherever you're going. It's like work with a naturopath and a chiropractor or a functional medicine practitioner to get a really good form of iron right. that's absorbable. Yeah. Or even just back, I mean, in conjunction with that, why is the iron low in the first place? <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Why is the iron low? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is implied. I get yeah. it, right? Like I'm 100%, but I think that's the other funny thing when somebody says, I have iron and email on iron. Well, why is your iron low? I don't know. But I take these pills every day. I'm like, oh, well, let's. Yeah, there's something I do a little mini training called the thinking process. So I, I like to kind of talk about. So when you see a biomarker, the level that is high or low, you have to kind of go back to what that biomarker is and the biochemistry and the, and the metabolism that's associated with it. So something like iron, which comes into our bodies exogenously on our, in our food. So it, the natural thing to say is, oh, there's not enough in my diet. Well, that's potentially true. It could be that you have plenty in your diet, but you're just not absorbing it properly. That's true. Or you could be situation where you've got an unknown infection. I mean, a bacteria loves iron. So that could be another situation where you, you have tons of iron, but it's just being used up by yeah. pathogens <laughs> in your body. Or here's another one. You could be bleeding internally. Mm -hmm. And... That's something, especially for men, so we very rarely see iron deficiency anemia in men, but if you do see it in, in your male patients, you've got to start wondering about a, a potential slow bleed. I mean, it could be an, a bleeding ulcer of some kind, some kind of bleed that's happening somewhere in the digestive tract, probably, or internal bleeding, which is fairly uncommon, I would guess. Yeah. But yeah, no, exactly. You've got to write, get to the pinpoint. So yep. is there not enough coming in from the diet? Are you using up too much? Are you losing it somehow? Could be losing it in your stool, you're losing it in your urine for some of these other biomarkers, but for iron, usually some kind of a bleed that's happening. Yeah. Which takes some sleuthing to find yeah. out what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing with iron in men is in practice, I didn't see a lot of men, but I had a, a small group, right, of husbands or brothers or somebody that would mm. come see me and they would have high iron. Yeah. Right. They would have high iron. And I would send him to a hematologist friend. And after about my fifth or sixth mail that I sent him, he called me and he goes, do you advertise for this? Like, how do these men know to come find you when they all have high iron? I said, I don't advertise. I test them. Well, because I test. Yeah, yes. I test them and I find it on testing and then yeah. I send them to you. So in that situation, you've got to like, where is that iron coming from? So yeah. are they consuming too much or are they just not losing the iron that they should be somehow? So it's building up in their system. Yeah, I mean, there's two genetic, well, there's a genetic issue, yeah. hemochromatosis and then hemosiderosis, which typically affects men. Yeah. Yeah. Phlebotomy is really good. Donate blood. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they would all do. I'm one of those people that always feels really good when I have my blood drawn. And yeah, so routine blood. I guess the, the ancients probably had something with their bloodletting. I mean, I think they, they may have gone over the top a few times. Like I think like wasn't George Washington was sort of bled to death before on his deathbed. I think you're right. Yeah. But yeah. So the idea of like letting off some of these uh, humors in your blood probably was yeah, probably had some basis in physiology. 
Now we know that it's for the the hemochromatosis, the iron overload people. Good thing. Everybody else? Maybe not. Maybe yeah, not so maybe much. Not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's where testing helps. Yeah. Okay, let's go on to the metabolic panel. Mm-hmm. A, a, either a basic or a comprehensive metabolic panel, because that's the other super common test that everybody gets, CBC mm-hmm. and a CMP. What Give us some clues as, into that. Well, I think the first thing that really annoys me about the CMP from a sort of a Western medical perspective is the biomarkers that they've removed over time. No. They don't, there's no GGT in there anymore. There's no LDH. There's no uric acid. You know, I think, so I did a presentation for Rupa called um, Hidden Intelligence in the CBC and Chem Screen. And I think the first thing that I pointed out was like, there are holes in the CMPs that need to be filled. So that's my first beef is like, those things tell you very much, a lot. Mm -hmm. So what does GGT tell us? It tells us about the liver gallbladder situation. I always look at the liver enzymes, ALT, AST, and and GGT is really giving us small little windows into kind of which areas of the body are potentially out of balance. So like if your AST level is is elevated, it's maybe an issue that's outside of the liver and the gallbladder is more general in the system, in the systemic system, because those enzymes, transaminase enzymes are produced in tissues other than the liver. If an ALT is, is elevated, I'm thinking probably the liver. GGT, I'm thinking the what's called the biliary tree or the, or the gallbladder area. So GGT can be really helpful in that respect. It's also associated with glutathione, which is another interesting finding. So not it's not a general measure of glutathione. So for those of you that don't know, glutathione is an amino acid complex that's really helpful for phase two liver detoxification, or is it phase one? I can't remember. Two. Two, yeah. yeah. It's the, uh, whichever one of those six of the phase, phases that has glutathione. But it's something that the body really needs. And so GGT can be like a little window into glutathione issues. And then LDH tells you, um, I look at it with low levels as really being part of a kind of that early blood sugar dysregulation. Lactate dehydrogenase is part of the pyruvate metabolism pathway and, and how the body's managing sugars. But elevated is really helpful for sort of general tissue inflammation. In fact, if you're ever working with patients that are suffering from cancer, I mean, LDH is really one of those really important biomarkers to be measuring, especially over time, because if the levels are optimal or even just slightly above normal, and then suddenly the level starts to jump, you've got to think about metastatic mm. issues because the tissues are now starting to generate and LDH is being released into systemic circulation. So that's another one. And then uric acid to me is uh, an inflammatory marker, early inflammatory marker. And and obviously tells us about gout, which you know, is still prevalent. There are still people suffering from gout. Right, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, it's, it's an inflammatory marker in my perspective. So when those three are missing, you know, you're kind of missing a little window into the gallbladder. You're missing a window into maybe early stage blood sugar dysregulation. You're missing a window into potential tissue issues with inflammation and then also inflammation with uric acid. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about the, the liver panel. I think that's so important. Alkaline phosphatase, another one of those liver enzymes, low levels, I think of being kind of very early warning sign for zinc deficiency, slightly elevated levels, very associated with gallbladder issues. What else? Uh, Your electrolytes, so your potassium, your sodium, your CO2 and your chloride, sort of helping you look. And there's a way of looking at those for a sort of pH balance. Oh, yeah. So are you trending towards more of an alkalosis or an acidosis? Usually it's a metabolic system. But also potassium and sodium, I like as a window into early, early warning signs of adrenal issues. So that's some, some issues that you can look at. And again, 
most allopathic physicians aren't going to look at it through that lens mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Help me out here. What else are we looking at? Oh, um, yeah, you've got glucose on there. <laughs> glucose, very helpful. Your glucose. Yeah, I was going to say calcium too. By loving people go. Yeah, calcium and phosphorus. Absolutely. Right. I'm getting enough calcium. My calcium is fine. And it goes back to the clean bu- blood analogy that you gave. Yeah. Like your body is always going to work very hard to keep your calcium level at a pretty steady state. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean everything else about your calcium is perfect. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that uh, Gray Graham Biotics taught me was really when you're looking at what he called the calcium need, not a deficiency. It's like the body does have a need for calcium and whether or not it's coming from your diet or whether there's enough stored in your body. There's a lot of other systems that are at play and it's a digestive issue in some ways because a lot of these minerals, I mean, even iron absorption is a digestive issue kind of comes back to sort of early naturopathic philosophy. Yeah. Deal with it, get the gut healthy. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But uh, so what else here? We're looking at proteins. So total protein is basically the mix between albumin and what are called globulins. This is something I picked up in my early training. And again, it's hard to substantiate with physiology or with, there isn't evidence-based research on a lot of this stuff, unfortunately. So my team, my research team over at ODX, we are I have a phenomenal researcher, Beth Allen, who does, she loves nothing better than to get stuck into the stacks. And so she works very hard to sort of help substantiate the optimum ranges that we have. And she'll come to me and go, you know what? The optimum range you have really isn't substantiated in the research. I think that this would be a better one. So we're always, it's constantly evolving on that respect. Yeah. But the thing that I was going to talk about is sort of a gastrointestinal picture that the proteins, albumin and globulin sort of tell. There is a condition that is talked about in naturopathic circles, hypochlorhydria or low stomach acid, which for most people think, well, but low stomach acid? I think I have high stomach acid. It's like burns like crazy. Yeah, I have heartburn. Yeah, I have heartburn. Hypochlorhydria or low stomach acid, when you actually start testing the pH in the stomach, it's usually high. I mean, for a lot of people, it's elevated. It's not two or three, which it should be. I mean, three even then is getting a little bit high. So the hypochlorhydria is low stomach acid. And what happens in that situation is that you're not digesting your proteins properly. So you have undigested proteins are sitting in the body. And so we can start measuring levels of albumin and total protein and globulins to give us a sense of whether or not someone is moving in the direction to be in the hypochlorhydric state. Or are they looking at what we call more of a gastritis, which is if you have a long-standing hypochlorhydria, low stomach acid, the lining of the stomach, which is usually meant to be in an acidic environment, actually starts to become inflamed. And it gets very sore. And so that's when people are with hypochlorhydria, low stomach acid, are complaining of heartburn because, yeah, they've got, you know, their gastric mucosa is inflamed. So we can tell that from proteins, albumins, and globulins. And the other one is the BUN and the creatinine, Mm. helping us look at Kidney. kidney. And again, I look at this concept of early stage kidney dysfunction is called renal insufficiency. It's like oftentimes when the liver is really compromised, a lot of the burden falls upon the, the kidneys to kind of deal and filter and that sort of stuff. And the kidneys can become dysfunctional. Also, there's a kind of a nice dehydration view when the BUN level starts to drop as well. Yeah, so that's the, and then you add ferritin and things like that into, and so you start slowly adding biomarkers into the chem screen to kind of make them more meaningful. But uh, yeah, no, that's, there's really some good metabolic things that we can look at. There's some good functional medicine things. So some of the top uh, things we're looking at would be hypochlorhydria, liver dysfunction, gallbladder dysfunction, we'd be looking at uh, adrenal issues, blood sugar dysregulation issues, early stage renal issues, inflammation, that kind of stuff. Going back to the hypochlorhydria, because you know we're going to get this question, when you're looking at the total protein, would you want it, when it's high or low, do you start to suspect 
Well, unfortunately, the total protein is really, it's the other two that you're looking at. The total protein can be completely normal, but it, because it is the sum of the albumin or the globulin, so if the globulin levels are really high, like above 2.8, that can then push the total protein to be a little bit elevated. And that would be kind of a, a hallmark sign of potentially moving in that direction. Now, if you go talk to your allopathic physician about this, they're going to say, yeah, no, it's not. You're crazy. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> so that's kind of where, Carrie, I think tying things into symptomology is so helpful. Yeah. It's like blood is not absolute. It tells us an enormous amount about what's going on, but it, you know, you can't categorically, I think, I, so I always say this is assessment, it's not diagnosis. Where the diagnosis leads to actual treatment of a, of a known pathological condition. Whereas we're looking at um, that gray area between where I'm not feeling very well to I need to be on medication of some kind. Right. Blood glucose is a classic one. It used to be that they would wait until the blood glucose was over 115 before even thinking that somebody was potentially diabetic. Now they have this concept of pre-diabetes. Think about that. You know, that wasn't yeah. something that they talked about when I was in school. We did, right. but they didn't. And so they're recognizing, hmm, there's this state that exists before they're diabetic. And we're looking at insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome and things like that. So yeah, that's the nightmare of yet. The nightmare of yet. Oh, you don't have diabetes yet. We'll wait until you do them. We'll put, give you metformin and insulin and get you hooked on drugs the rest of your life. Which actually leads me to the next question. And I've heard you talk about this multiple times. In fact, you just did a recent lecture or webinar for Rupa about sort of the top 10 tests that you like to see. And so now I'm sure people listening are like, got it. Great. I have my, I've got a CBC and I have my CMP. I have a lot of the symptoms that you just mentioned. I've been told I have gallbladder. I think I have adrenal. I definitely have heartburn. What? And one of the things I want to point out is that some of these extra tests, GGT, uric acid, they're not crazy. They're not rare. They're not generally expensive no. and you can ask for them. You know, and that's what I love. I'm all about empowering people to say, mm -hmm. I really would like these extra tests or can we look in these extra markers because they're not a weirdo naturopathic test. They used right. to be on the test. <laughs> they used to. Yeah, they used to be yeah. on the test. Exactly. <laughs> you ask for them back. Yeah, I think it was like CMP 25, then it became 20 and then 18 and then 17. Now it's 14 or something. It's like, okay. Yeah. And in some cases you get nine. I'm like, nine? Nine, right. What do you do with nine? So what other extra... I know, you know, I don't, in the limited time we have left, are there other extra tests that you just love? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it really, it also depends. Yes. I mean, I'll, I figured I'm mostly <laughs> educating practitioners and physicians. So mm -hmm. for me, it's like, how do I educate them to go beyond just the standard chemistry screens and recognizing, you know, that there are other tests that you can run here. Yeah. So the way that I phrase it is, what do you want to learn? What do you want to know more about? Are you suspecting blood sugar regulation issues? In that case, you need a fasting insulin, you need a C-peptide, and you need hemoglobin A1C, which is now pretty much common. Yeah. So with the hemoglobin A1C, they can actually calculate what's called the estimated average glucose. So that's a nice way of converting a rather esoteric percentage hemoglobin A1C into a value that people actually can understand. And that's kind of why they did that. But it's kind of nice. So the EAG is something that they do. So when you have fasting insulin and C-peptide, there's a calculator that we have in the software called the HOMA2 calculator, and there's yeah. tons of articles on it on my website. It's a tremendous, it came out of the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom, and it's a, it used to be a calculation that you could do on a calculator, but now it's a little bit more complex than that. So we actually have a license to be able to use this calculator, and we generate three values from that. So when, I don't know, insulin is such an important part of blood sugar regulation, so when your blood glucose level starts to rise, 
the body doesn't want to have high glucose. It wants to get that glucose into the cell. So it uses a hormone called insulin, which is produced from the pancreas in order to kind of facilitate the movement of glucose into the cell. The trouble is there are various different issues. One is how much insulin can your pancreatic cells produce? And so there's a value on this HOMA2 score called the HOMA2 percent B. So the beta cells of the insulin mm. of the pancreas, the ones that put out insulin. So it gives you sort of an output. How much output are we looking at? Are we looking at too much or too little? And then there's this quantitative analysis of how sensitive are the cells to insulin. Problem is when you're moving into that pre-diabetic or even a diabetic state, the cells become less responsive. The door just doesn't open as much. They don't want to. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> no. accepting insulin. No, go away. And so the insulin piles up in the blood and starts to rise. So the HOMA 2% S score is like how sensitive are your cells to insulin? The lower the score, the less sensitive. And then there's an inverse correlation to what they call the HOMA 2 IR or insulin resistance score, which tells you how much insulin resistance is there in the body. So if it's above 1.4, you're looking at an early manifestation of metabolic syndrome. I think 1.6 is like full-blown insulin resistance. So you can get this from fasting glucose and insulin and or C-peptide. So two biomarkers, or even just one, if you had glucose and fasting insulin or glucose and C-peptide, you're going to get the HOMA2 score. And that is a huge window into assessing for your metabolism of blood sugar regulation. Next would be, how much do you want to know about systemic inflammation? That's mm, where looking at huge. things like high-sensitivity C-reactive protein is really important. And more and more allopathic physicians are looking at that, desperately trying to find research that says, Statin drugs will lower your HSCRP. And I think they sometimes manufacture the research to show that it does. But there's so many great things that we can do to lower inflammation in the body. So we don't need to be taking statin medication. Then along with that would be something like homocysteine mm -hmm. and fibrinogen levels. So those three would be part of my sort of inflammatory cardiovascular window. I do a whole presentation on the 15 independent clinical risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And three of them are fibrinogen, high sensitivity, C-reactive protein, and homocysteine. Then we've got the thyroid panel. So that would be going above and beyond just TSH. Yep. TSH can give you a really good sense if someone is a primary hypothyroidism, the problem is the thyroid gland itself. Whereas we know there's lots of other issues that are going on as well. So the thyroid panel would be really important to dive deeper into the thyroid. In the software, we, we do the uh, free T3 to reverse T3 ratio, which is a really cool way of looking at how mm -hmm. sort of even just thyroid resistance there is in, in the system. So the cells peripherally can become sensitive or insensitive to thyroid. Vitamin D, I think, is an yeah. absolute no-brainer. Everybody should have their vitamin D levels checked. I think it should be an absolute must. So yeah, keeping your vitamin D levels at a decent amount is really, really important. Then we're moving on to some of this. And thankfully, vitamin D has gotten a lot of press, right, in the last two years. It's... Yeah, absolutely. Especially from COVID. Especially from COVID and yeah. across the globe. Across the globe. You know, a lot of countries now are either advocating to get tested or just go on it and yeah. response to COVID. Yeah. So vitamin D is finally getting its day outside of functional medicine. Yeah. And I remember talking about vitamin D in 1995. It's yeah. like, <laughs> we've been talking about it for a long time. We've been talking about, I mean, I remember Dr. Dick Tom talking about homocysteine in 95. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about HSCRP in 95. And no one was really talking about it back then. Yeah. And it's now become sort of slightly mainstream. Um, coming on to hormones, male hormones, female hormones. Typically, I think for men, because we don't have that variation across a menstrual cycle for a lot of women in their menstrual age, mm -hmm. I think that can be really problematic for 
people like me who are writing software to try and interpret what the heck is going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. apologies to female patients that we are trying to crack that code. But for men doing DHEA levels, estradiol levels, free testosterone levels, we actually calculate free testosterone from total testosterone albumin and sex hormone binding globulin because we find that it gives a, a better output. It's one of those crazy things. LabCorp and Quest both measure free testosterone, but their results are completely different because wow. they use different reagents. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. So what we do is yeah. we don't measure free testosterone. We calculate it using a thing called the Vermulin calculator. And it's really, really close. It's pretty amazing. Wow. And that's done from sex hormone binding globulin, the globulin or the protein that binds a lot of hormones in the body. And so in a lot of male patients, you will see really high levels of sex hormone binding globulin. So they think they're testosterone deficient when they're really not. Yeah. So it's just they're not too much of their testosterone is being bound. Estradiol levels in, in men is really important too, especially in men over the age of 35, can be contributing a lot to abdominal obesity and then issues of, of peripheral conversion of testosterone into estradiol by aromatase enzymes and things like that. And then we look at magnesium levels. I mean, even just beginning that first foray into looking at, at nutrients, serum and red blood cell magnesium, it's one of those nutrients that is typically deficient in, in patients. Yeah, yeah. And so for getting that cursory measurement is really helpful going, hey, you need to be taking magnesium and the blood's telling us that that's so. So those would be kind of my, so recap, <laughs> yeah. more in-depth blood glucose, looking at some inflammation, looking at some cardiovascular markers, looking at some thyroid markers, looking at some nutritional deficiencies, vitamin D and serum and red blood cell magnesium. And then just doing some very cursory, starting to like peel back the layer, especially for men and women, obviously over the age of 35, when we started looking at this anti-aging concept, right? those could be really, really helpful as well. Yeah. That, that whole idea of kind of health span, right? If you, living a long time is one thing, but being healthy when you do it is another, Yeah, is better. That's the goal. <laughs> let's, yeah. yeah. Let's age gracefully and in a mobile and a, in a brain sufficient manner, as opposed to slamming into old age. Yeah. So many things that can go wrong, right? It's the joints, it's the muscles, yeah. it's the brain, it's yeah. the digestive the system, yeah. the heart, the kidneys, the, yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, do you get blood work since you're the master? Every year. <laughs> I bet you track it too. It's funny. The, the phlebotomist always is like, I'm sitting there and they get out all these tubes, one, two, three, and there's usually about 12 to 13 tubes of that they're doing. And one guy said, I haven't drawn this much blood since I was in the army. I went, okay. Once you've got a needle in there, yeah. just take the stuff, right? Your body's <laughs> right. going to replace it. And like I said, for men, it's actually a really good thing. Right. You feel better. <laughs> yeah. So my anti-aging panel includes all of those things that I just talked about. What would I add to that? You know, it depends. It's like, as I'm getting older, it's like I'm focusing more maybe on the cardiovascular risk stuff. Makes sense. So adding in lipoproteins mm -hmm. and depending on, on how out of whack one's uh, cholesterol panel might be, doing some lipid fractionation would be helpful and stuff like that. Do you get blood work done? I do get blood work done. Actually, yeah. what's funny, I was thinking about the tubes. I have an aura ring. Oh, I've always wanted one of those. Yeah. And but I have, I've, this is my third aura ring in the era in COVID. They were doing a study where they were matching your symptoms with, because it tracks HRV and your temperature rise and fall. The heart rate variability and stuff like that. Yeah. Right. And so you could be part of the study and as part of the study that you would agree to go get blood work. They wanted not just oh. COVID antibodies, but they ran a bunch of other blood work and which was really nice. And I, one of my, one of the panels, I mean, it was like 18 tubes of blood and the phlebotomist said the same thing. And I said, I literally have never drawn this much blood before. <laughs> like, yeah. What are you testing? I said, well, it's a, 
it's a functional company and a, for lack of a better word, a biohacker type company. And so mm. they're going deep and I can't wait to see. So I yeah. actually had that last year. Thank you, Oura Ring, because, because of the, some of the testing that they had done. So you part of the, some of the research that they're doing? Uh, they did on COVID. I was part of their, yeah. So people, cause what they noticed, my understanding is they were noticing people having major temperature spikes. It's over your baseline. They don't actually mm. tell you what your temperature is. It's not like a thermometer, but they the ring tracks your baseline and then it'll go up or down depending on your temperature. So people were spiking up and it's plus three, plus four over their baseline. And then the next day, right, right. they would feel crummy and yeah. test positive. Hi, you've got COVID. <laughs> they turn into the COVID. But yeah. what's interesting is as a female, I would be, you know, my temperature would be pretty steady and all of a sudden it'd be plus one, plus one and a half. And I'm like, oh my God, did it get me? No, it was ovul- I was leading up to ovulation. I had ovulated, right? I had ovulated and progesterone is warming for those who don't know. So right, right. Yeah, is yeah. once you release an egg and you ovulate, your temperature, your core temperature does go up a degree or so. And so I wrote, I was making fun of it in my, and social media. I said, here, here, I thought it got me. And it was just my normal physiology. Kicking in, yeah. Doing its thing. And so now what I love is the new generation of Aura does track. It does account for did you get your period? Are you close to your period? Where are you in your cycle? Because I think a number of women were like, is it COVID? <laughs> or yeah, am I just, yeah. ov- like, did I just ovulate? Like, I don't know. So are they providing kind of like a fertility window as well for females? They did a study. Yeah, they actually did a study. The only reason I know this is because when I worked at Precision Analytical Dutch Test, they did a study looking at the aura ring data with on Dutch what's called the cycle mapping. So they hmm. would do hormone testing basically every day of a woman's cycle. And they would see if the temperature spike on the ring matched the progesterone spike on the cycle map. And they saw that it did. Wow. And so they built it into their, and then they published it. The paper got published. You can find it on the Aura site. You can find it on the Dutch test site. And then now with this new generation, Gen 3 ring, I get questions. It'll say, do you, like, when is your period? Do your period is due? Like I get these pop-ups, right? Have you, has your period? On your phone? On my app. Yeah. yeah. It'll say, is your period started? And then it will account. That's a personal question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Or <Aura Ring. laughs> Who's asking? Right. But it does help. Yeah. And it is fun to see that rise in temperature. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you progesterone. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. 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 I've always, like I said, I've always, I've been intrigued by, do you know uh, Peter Atia? I do. I do. I mean, yeah. What a brain. Yeah. <laughs> oh no kidding. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Anyway, he's, I know he's been involved with them and has talked about them a lot. So. Yeah. Yeah. He's a big aura fan. Aura fan. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Yeah. No, I like, lo- you should get one. I should. Yeah. Right. Join the club. Yeah. I just don't know about <laughs> having a ring on my, I don't know. It's like having one on my right finger. I mean, almost here about my wedding ring, but. Right. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, I should. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we should probably clarify. Like this podcast is not sponsored by Aura Ring, but right, it is. It is interesting. But we're we, interested. We are interested in this, and I mean, we're about tracking and data. So whether it's lab work or a wearable, or if you would like to sponsor this content, yeah. right? Yeah, or, or if you're listening. <laughs> all right. Well, last question. Given it's this is the root cause medicine podcast, yeah. and I'm all about practical and tactical. What are some one or two key things that you want people to walk away from with this regarding labs. Get your blood done. Yeah. Find a practitioner to work with, to help with interpretation. I think sometimes when we do deep dives into blood work, I think it has to be some context in the interpretation so that you're not sort of flying by the seat of your pants, so to speak. So that's why I kind of like the idea of working. That's why my company is a business to business company and we're not direct to consumer. 
So if you come to my website, we've got a practitioner directory. If you want to find someone that's doing this type of interpretation, you can communicate with them. And I think, you know, the other part of it too is recognizing that, like I said earlier, blood is not absolute. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's not the be all and end all. It tells you an enormous amount. It's that great first pass testing. It's why I always say to naturopathic physicians and functional medicine practice, it probably should be the very first test that you run in your practice. It is functional medicine testing. It's not as sophisticated somewhat as, as Precision's doing with Dutch or Genova's doing with their testing, but it gives you such a broad view of phys- human physiology. And like I said, that trending towards dysfunction. And it also, I think it gives you a nice window into potentially doing further testing as well, stuff that Rupa is, is really working with. So get your blood done, find a practitioner to work with. And then in terms of just like some things that you can do, I would say the number one thing that interrupts blood work, I think is stress. Mm. We're, we're actually just releasing a white paper on stress and looking at blood biomarkers and stress. So stress does change your blood biomarkers. And I think it's something that we're all used to stress now, because kind of mm-hmm. like our thresholds have come to the point where we're almost expecting it. So it affects our sleep and it affects our digestion, it affects our hormones, affects blood sugar regulation, it definitely affects our ability to our immune systems mm-hmm. and inflammation. So I think anything that you can do to help work with stress is really, really important. And it's always such a trite thing to say, oh, you know, de-stress. Well, deep breathing techniques, do meditate, yoga, really working with sleep, don't have any screens at night, limit the amount of electromagnetic devices that are in your aura, so to speak. (laughs) Make sure that your room is dark, make sure that your room is cool, get that eight hours of sleep uninterrupted if you can. And We're all sleep deprived, I think. And that has tremendous impact on stress. The other part too would be like, really pay attention to your diet. I think it's so hard nowadays. There are so many fatty diet trends, keto or paleo, or I don't know. Everything in between. (laughs) No, something in between. It's like, just eat plants. I mean, what was it Michael Pollan said? Eat plants. Oh, I like him. Yeah. Yeah. He's really one. I can't remember what I'm going to totally mess up what he said, but it basically eat plants and sparingly eat animals and make sure that the animals that you do eat are ones that are being raised well, that you know where that meat comes from. Right. If you drive down I-5 through California, through the stockyards, and you can smell it six or eight miles away. You do not want to be eating that meat. A, it's not fair for the animals and B, I right. don't think it's that healthy for you. So I know we got a pretty cool little uh, article that Beth Allen wrote called the Mediterranean Pyramid. It's like taking this food pyramid concept, but like kind of the yeah. Mediterranean style. It's not her work. It came out of some Italian magazine or something, but like drink a lot of water, make sure that the bottom of the pyramid are good fruits and vegetables, eat lots of plants, olive oils and things like that. And as we go up, start minimizing on the amount of dairy and food, red meat and white meat. And then mm-hmm. right at the top, sweets, maybe once or twice a month as a treat, make it in small amounts. This chocolate addict is having a hard time. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think chocolate, I mean, my wife loves chocolate. She's like 80, 85% is what she likes. Oh, that doesn't fit? Okay. I mean, I remember Andrew <laughs> Weil talking about one of his yeah, same. treats that he does is one cube of 85% chocolate every night. And that's what he, that's kind of what satisfies his cravings for sweets. Yeah. 
Same. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, big fan. Yeah. Well, Dr. Weatherby, I so appreciate it. This has been... Oh, thank you. I feel like I've just been yakking on and on and on. <laughs> Amazing. No, I, it's, I think people are going to pull out their labs and they're going to start highlighting and writing and yeah. requesting and feeling empowered. And that's ultimately what we want. So let everyone know where they can find you because I know people are going to say, I want that article and I want that article and I'll get that book. Yeah. So optimaldx.com is our website. We call it ODX. Okay. I've got two different types of blogs. We've got a regular blog and we've got a research blog. So if you love, we've got a whole resource center that you can download stuff. Like I said, a lot of it is geared towards the practitioners, but our writings on the main blog can be, I think, read by pretty much anybody. And what we're trying to do is to educate about biomarkers, about conditions, about healthy living, diet, lifestyle, and exercise and things like that. And then if you wanted to dive into some of our white papers, we're, we're starting to produce white papers. We did one on menopause. We're doing one on stress. I did a whole white paper on what is an optimal range. So we've got those as well. But yeah, or, one of the things I would say is tell your practitioners to come over. Yeah. <laughs> right. Send your doctor. Like if, you, yeah. if you're seeing a naturopath or a functional medicine practitioner and they haven't heard of me, send them our way. I mean, we're, we're there to educate and provide services that would impact you in the long run. So... But we're, we're primarily an education company, but we also have analytical software as kind of our main bread and butter of what sort of powers our work. And that is a physician's only service. And But some of the panels that Rupa provides from Vibrant and Boston Heart Lab and Access Medical Labs, they provide all of the, the raw data that we put into our systems or, or the practitioners put into our systems. And we provide analytical interpretive reporting. We provide the hidden meaning. Which is what people need. Like I said, a blood test is full of information. So there's no meaning there. So we take that information, we run machine learning and algorithms on it and provide some meaning. So, yeah. That's amazing. Well, like I said, I've been following you since 2002 and with I still have the book to prove cool. it. Wow. Thank you. It's 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you again so much for being on the Root Cause Medicine podcast. You're so welcome, Carrie. Thank you. goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.